Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Eric Stacey, who joins us from Portland, Oregon. Eric Stacey, who grew up in Hollywood, has had a 30-year career working in both film and television as a screenwriter, producer, cinematographer and editor. And in 1998, he branched out into independent filmmaking, producing many documentaries, but also feature-length movies, his most recent being Unthinkable, an airline captain story, which is a highly thought-provoking and disturbing creative dramatization of the events surrounding the very tragic deaths of retired airline captain and 9-11 researcher Philip Marshall and his two teenage children in 2013. And it is to discuss that movie and the tragic events that prompted that movie to be made that he joins us today. Eric Stacey, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you for your interest in the film, Julian. Happy to be here. Well, I have to say, it's great to be speaking to you after having to postpone the interview last week, which is completely my fault. Uh, So thanks ever so much for your patience with me. It's great to be speaking to you at last. Now, I came across your movie a few weeks ago through a link on 9-11 Blogger. And at that time, you had it up on YouTube in full for a few days so that people could preview it. And uh, I was one of those lucky people who got in there early and managed to watch it. And I have to say that I was really very, very taken with the movie. I thought the subject matter was compelling, though disturbing, of course, and I thought it was extremely well made and that you had some really accomplished actors taking part in it. And so I was prompted to invite you onto the program. And as I say, that the movie is a creative dramatization. Perhaps we'll get into what I mean by that in a few moments. A, a dramatization of the events surrounding the deaths of Marshall and his two children and the family's dog. And I understand that the county sheriff concluded that Marshall had murdered his children and then killed himself in a tragic murder-suicide. But when the journalist Wayne Madsen investigated that case very early on, he came to the conclusion that they had possibly been the victims of professional killers. Now, before we start talking about this, let me just say that I don't actually know a huge amount about this particular case, but from the the little that I've had time to look at so far, I remain agnostic about it, let's put it that way. I, I don't know, but I nevertheless do think that this is a story that needs to be told and thought about. So let me start, Eric, by asking you to introduce yourself to us a little bit more you grew up in Hollywood and you had this long career so could you tell us how you got into the filmmaking business and a little bit more about the productions you've been involved in over the years oh boy um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and keep it uh, short um, my parents were both in the business I suppose I was you know I was uh, fascinated with with movies because uh, the, the the first movie my father ever took me to see was King Kong the original with Fay Ray, uh-huh. you know, he uh, he was a production executive who'd come up from the ranks of, uh, I think he'd, he'd worked in New York as an usher, he went to Hollywood, he was a prop man on the first talking film, The Jazz Singer with Al Jolson, oh, wow. mm-hmm. became an assistant director, uh, films like Gone with the Wind, became a studio head and so forth anyway at king kong he he told me all about how you know i'm trying to watch this fascinating movie and he's telling me all the technical things of how it's done and don't be scared because <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> because not real it's just a movie it's not real yeah. he ruined the movie for me but uh, i guess planted the seeds of curiosity and how things are done and so a filmmaker might have been born at that screening but I went on uh, 
you know, I wish I could say that I had films like Titanic or some more familiar films to my credit. Uh, probably the most recognizable would be uh, Patton with George C. Scott, best film of uh-huh. uh, 1969. I was early on a third assistant director on Patton. It's a great film, actually. So you can tell already I'm, I'm an old guy. I, I was never happy, actually, being an assistant director, running after actors and doing paperwork and that kind of stuff. I always wanted to be on the more creative side, so I, mm. I started writing screenplays. And like many writers in Hollywood, sold a number, but they were never produced. They went into turnaround and you know got lost in the shuffle over time. But uh, started producing, actually, with a, a friend of mine who was a documentary filmmaker, uh, David Oyster, who had produced Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Oh, yeah. We made a series together called uh, America's Scenic Rail Journeys. And that sort of lit the fire for me to go on and start making my own films. Mm-hmm. A number of documentaries, uh, one on education, one on sustainability, one on clean air, and then three features sort of mixed in a horror comedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds intriguing, yeah. Which was my first feature and kind of fun. And then we went on. After I moved up to Portland, Oregon with my wife, we made a film about an Iraq combat vet who returns home suffering uh, with PTSD called Purple Mind. Then last year, on to uh, Unthinkable, an airline captain's uh-huh. story. So Yeah. Which, of course, is what we're going to be talking about today. But, of course, I've got to ask you now, how did you make that shift from the previous productions that you've been doing there to talking about something which is related to 9-11? I mean, what what made you start questioning the official story about 9-11? Well, I grew up in the 60s. And um, the 60s was a very political time. A lot of people started thinking about things that uh, they hadn't thought of before and becoming very proactive. The women's movement was born uh, during the 60s. Dr. King began the march for equality for for people of color. We had um, Cesar Chavez struggle, you know, for the rights of farm workers. You know, lots and lots of movements began during that time. Mm. You know, questioning authority was something you did. And when 9-11 happened, um, you know, it was such a shocking thing. Initially, uh, it was so shocking that, you know, that you didn't question. But uh, I remember a day or two after when people started getting, receiving anthrax in the mail, it became, you know, fairly clear Mm. that uh, it wasn't just a few members of Al-Qaeda in, you know, sitting in caves that were behind this, you know, some very sophisticated Mm. operations and uh, technologies were involved. So, you know, I was just uh, overflowing with questions and Happily or not, unhappily, uh, many of the questions are have been answered or are being answered, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know we found answers to how to stop these kinds of things. Uh, it's it's actually becoming more and more difficult, I think, because there's an equal reaction uh, on the other side to people they like to call conspiracy theorists. Recently, I read an article that uh, suggested that the bad connotation of conspiracy theorists can be overcome by calling people like myself independent investigators, which is actually more more accurate. Yeah. You know, there's there are a lot of us, and uh, happily, the the numbers continue to grow. 
Yes, there's a bit of war of words out there at the moment, isn't there? Because I've, I've, I've read a, a number of articles that are using that, that term conspiracy theorist and then trying to associate with, with all sorts of things, which certainly I you know, have no interest in whatsoever. It's as if everything's being lumped together in order to discredit everybody who's basically asking questions about exactly. uh, anything that challenges authority. Okay, well, let's turn to this movie, this very sad case of Philip Marshall and his two children. Um, Before we talk about the movie itself, I think we do need to discuss a little bit about the case, because I'm not sure that all the listeners will know, some will know something about what happened last year, but I expect many will not, especially here in the UK. So can you give us a kind of overview of the official explanation of what happened to Marshall and his children? And then we'll move on to um, any reasons why we might have to doubt that official view. So tell us a bit more about Philip Marshall and give us a, a summary, if you can, of the official version of the events that are said to have happened last year. Phil Marshall was a pilot. Um, His father was a crop duster. He grew up in Louisiana. He early on was a flight instructor for, you know, students flying a small aircraft. Uh, And he was quite a good pilot, so much so that a number of people recognized his talents and he moved up to flying heavier and heavier, uh, more sophisticated aircraft while he was still in his uh, mid to late 20s. Before he turned 30, he was approached by an intermediary to be a contract pilot flying a a fellow named Barry Alderman Seal, who later became notorious as a drug smuggler and arms smuggler uh, involved in Iran-Contra. Marshall flew a CIA-owned Learjet for Barry Seal for a bit over a year. In that time, he began to notice that they would fly, for instance, from uh, somewhere in, in Central America to one of a number of smaller ports, either in Louisiana, Arkansas, Mina being one of them, landing late at night, you know, going under the radar without being investigated by the local law enforcement folks. And he, he started to realize that, you know, there was something going on. So uh, he didn't stay at that for more than a year or so and went on to become a commercial pilot for Eastern Airlines, then United Airlines. When the the 9-11 attacks happened, United and American Airlines were impacted, you know, severely. Unknown people had shorted both airlines in the stock market. There were clearly a number of questions uh, about who who knew these things were coming far enough in advance to place short orders. Um, it was about that time that Phil Marshall left the, the world of commercial aviation. He had a had a bad knee, which precluded him from you know from flying as he had for so many years, twenty years. And um, he started writing books. His first book was called Lakeview Airport, which was a fictional account of his year flying for Barry Seal. You know, in that book, he wasn't hesitant to write about having operated under the instructions of of a fellow named, uh, I think it's William Cathy was the name, but when the Iran-Contra hearings began on television, he noticed that the fellow that he'd worked for, William Cathy, was uh, being interviewed by Congress wearing a, a Marine colonel's uniform uh, 
and his name was Oliver North. So Marshall realized at that point that he had been in the thick of a covert operation that was being run out of the basement of the White House, run by then Vice President George Bush. So that was his first book. <laughs> right. Yes. The next two books, uh, False Flag 9-11 and the later book, Bamboozled, were both nonfiction books, which uh, Marshall had spent a number of years researching the people who were actually behind the training of the 9-11 terrorist pilots and the financing for those operations. And his writings and conclusions are quite encyclopedic, if you will. He had no compunction against uh, naming names and connecting the dots. A lot of what he had to say was, I'm certain, quite alarming to the people he was talking about, which ranged from government figures in the you know, in the U.S. government to you know who was behind the formation of Al Qaeda, 9/11, CIA, the, uh, the Saudi intelligence uh, chiefs, and so on. So. Uh, he clearly wasn't interested in making friends writing these books. He was more interested hmm. in, uh, you know, in bringing criminals to justice. And um, in February last year, he ends up dead in his house and his two children end up dead and the family dog as well. Exactly. And the official position on this is that this is a murder-suicide. It's all, all cut and dry. Yes, it's, it's a very, very clear case. However, the investigative journalist Wayne Madsen started looking into this very early on, I understand, and he does not believe that. He's very dissatisfied with the way that the case was handled by the police, and he uncovered a number of reasons to suspect, in his opinion anyway, that this could have been a professional killing and not a murder-suicide at all. So could you talk us through some of the main reasons Wayne Madsen is suspicious of this official narrative? Yeah, Wayne, he was right on top of this from the beginning. In fact, he traveled to uh, Calaveras County, which is where Marshall lived in a town called Murphy's. Uh, he was there within a week of the murder, and he filed 10 reports. Wayne Madsen has a paid a subscription blog he's posting at generally every day, every other day. He's a, you know, a journalist who's got national recognition, quite well known, you know, very unafraid to tackle controversial stories. Was he actually involved in the making of your film in any way? Yes. The film is based, say, 50% on the official story and 50% on Wayne Madsen's reports. But he was personally involved in the production. He was not personally involved in the production, but oh. I read his, his reports early on. Another 9-11 uh, independent investigator named Barbara Honiger, who had been a policy analyst in the Reagan White House early on and uh, wrote a, the preeminent book on Iran-Contra, she alerted me to the killings and, and also to Wayne. I developed a screenplay, and before we started shooting, I contacted Wayne, showed him the screenplay, and, and he said, by all means, you know, please go ahead with it. I wouldn't change a word. Uh -huh. But it wasn't until the film was finished, you know, we actually met, mm. and he saw the film and continued to feel positive about it, as he does to this day. And he arrived on the scene, did you say it was a couple of weeks after, something like that? Within a week. Within a week. Yeah, the uh -huh. murders happened sometime between the last day of January, the 31st of January, and the 1st of February, 2013. 
on what he saw, he was not satisfied with at all. That's exactly right. It took some digging for him to put the pieces together as he did. I have a continuity I'd be happy to share with you. Yeah, please do, yeah. That's based on, on his reports. The first thing he noted was that Marshall had appeared on a radio program in late 2012 called Coast to Coast. And he specifically said on that show, if he turned up dead, suicide should be discounted as the reason. That's you know just something to keep in mind that he, he was aware that people were um, tracking him, listening to what he had to say, reading his books, and that there was a faction that was seriously unhappy with what he had to say. Um, Madsen discovered an email that a, f- a friend had received uh, and said, our investigation shifted to discover how the training for the mission had transpired. This discovery led us to the real planners who were not associated with Al-Qaeda or any other known terrorist organization. Surprisingly, we discovered that some within the FBI had housed and supported the hijackers. You may now see where this is leading, and believe me, it is extremely disturbing. So that's an email from Phil Marshall himself. So does this suggest that this was the documentation or whatever that he had that he was going to put into a publication that, that actually was never published? No, that's the kind of information that he had already published. Okay. So, um, <laughs> But he had more to come, I understand. Is that right? He had more to come. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if he made a mistake uh, at all, it was probably, you know, talking about it before it would had actually been published, which might have saved his life, you know, had he been uh, a little more circumspect. So the, um, the next bit that Madsen reported was that the sheriff had stated that no gunshots were heard by neighbors on the evening of January 31st or the early morning of February 1st because the houses are, in quotes, far apart. In fact, Madsen says the houses are close together and one neighbor stated she could hear Phil whistling from inside his house. Police immediately denied that a silencer or other noise suppression device could have been used. So these are the kind of building blocks that the film is based on. And is it right that it was 18 hours or so between a neighbor telephoning the police and the police actually arriving on the scene? Yes. Four friends, four of Alex and Michaela's school friends, had noticed them absent from school. They'd tried to contact them on their phones and the calls hadn't been answered, messages hadn't been returned. So they went to the house. When they went to the house, a neighbor also joined them and at that point found the bodies and called the police. It was nearly an entire, a full day between the time that the neighbor had called the police and the police actually arrived on the site. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just police, I understand. It was some rather suspicious-looking FBI-type black vehicles with, with antennae. <laughs> Is that right? That's right, but that was later. Uh-huh. That came after the police had made their first investigations. The bodies had been removed. It was the night after the bodies had been removed in the film that the neighbors saw these um, official SUVs with, ante- you know, a forest of antennas on top and 
that may have been a day or two later in the actual continuity, but it did in fact occur that, you know, official state of California investigators uh, came and uh, were surveying the house. As the Calaveras County Sheriff was telling the local news people that they were the only ones who were involved in the investigation. You know, that's an interesting contradiction between the official story and the actual events. And in the film, Madison Freeman, who is Wayne Madsen creatively in your movie, he very early visits the house and sees a cleanup operation in progress. And at some point, a little bit thereafter, he, he visits the police at the house and the police are carrying out a forensic test. And I, I mean, I don't know whether that scene actually took place in reality, but nevertheless, in that scene, he challenges Sergeant DeWitt, the character in the movie, about uh, his negligent attitude towards forensic testing in this case. Is that right? Was Wayne Madsen very concerned about all the forensic testing as you well bet. surrounding this? You bet that was, you know, a, mm -hmm. a very big point. In the film, Madison Freeman questions DeWitt directly about what types of forensic tests, toxicology reports, uh, powder burn tests, ballistic tests, and so forth have been conducted. And in fact, there have been no reports issued, no official reports issued, uh, other than a very superficial toxicology test that revealed the presence of some painkillers in Marshall's system plus alcohol and a small amount of alcohol in the bloodstreams of the two kids. But no tests for powder burns, no ballistics tests, nothing to establish that the murder weapon was actually Philip Marshall's Glock. But the official reports all led one to believe that the murder-suicide was committed by Marshall with his own gun. And the best evidence they came up with to prove that was the fact that they found Philip Marshall's fingerprints on his own gun, which is, I mean... <laughs> right, okay. And yet that's got to be balanced against the fact, at least as I understand it, that the police initially said he was shot in the left side of the head, but he was right-handed, is that right? Well, the official story was that he was shot in the left temple, but the neighbor who found his body, the first one to find the body, he saw immediately that Marshall had been shot uh, in the right temple, and knew Marshall to be right-handed. So the conclusion by the sheriff that he'd been shot in the left, while perhaps not physically impossible, left a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if it was an assassination, then why would they kill the children? I mean, I, I guess the children could have been just in the wrong place at the wrong time, but wouldn't an assassin have chosen you know, a better opportunity to get Marshall alone? That seems very odd. <sighs> Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. What Wayne believes and what I believe, given the possibility that, that it was an assassination, because, you know, there is no conclusive proof one way or the other. You know, it, it's unlikely that it was a murder-suicide, given all the contradictions, but there's no proof that it wasn't just as there's no proof that it was a murder-suicide. Mm. You know, Wayne and others and myself all are of the opinion that the killer came to the house to end Philip Marshall's life when the kids were staying with Marshall, not realizing that they were in the house because uh, his wife was in uh, Turkey, I believe, on a trip to establish a, a new business 
which Marshall was in support of. They were very close to their divorce becoming final. And uh, he was supportive of Shawnee, uh, his wife's name was Shawnee, being able to support herself with an import business uh, involving spices and herbs and uh, perfumes and so forth from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And yet this is one of the things that's brought up with the uh, official version of events that they were going through this divorce and that, uh, you know, he'd had some kind of history of depression, I understand, and at some point had been taking some kind of medication. Was it was any substance to this, do you think, in being sufficiently concerning to lead to such an action? Well, there had been a, a history of, um, you know, serious disagreement between the two. They had They had fought. In years past, I think in 2008, the police had been called to their house for a domestic disturbance. But when Wayne spoke with the neighbors, some of whom you know knew Phil Marshall quite well, everyone was uh, under the impression that their divorce was amicable, that he was a, a caring father, that he was a good neighbor. He he coached his son's uh, little league team. You know, there was there was nothing to suggest that he was a violent person. Several of them knew that he he had a gun in the house, uh, a Glock, but that he he had no ammunition for it until a day or two before the murders. You know, which led the official story to conclude that. He set out to murder his kids, but in Wayne Madsen's investigation, it was just as likely that he had a reason to fear for his own safety from others who were unhappy with what he had written and what he might be intending to publish in the future. So, like I said, there's there's these sort of two parallel tracks, and depending on how you perceive the the importance of what he had written, the kinds of things that he was researching, you know, in in comparison to the unlikelihood that a, a loving father would kill his own kids, you know, you can make your own choice. That's what we try and do in the film is, you know, to make the choice clear, but uh, not to make it for the audience. It's up, up to the audience to decide. Yes, indeed, you do that in the film, that's right. You don't uh, impose a particular interpretation, although I do think you probably do. Obviously, your your views come out clearly in the movie, so you know that, that's fair enough, um, but you don't answer all the questions for everybody. Um, there is one major problem that I said before the interview that I wanted to bring up, and, and that has to do with if it really was the case that Marshall had this damning evidence that he was going to publish in the future, why is it the case that he didn't make copies of that and keep it in, in safety somewhere because I understand that you know his documentation and his computers were all taken away. Why did he not safeguard that information you know, as a kind of um, insurance against such a thing? What's your answer to that? Have you got an answer to that? You know, I don't. Mm -hmm. The house was clearly searched a number of times by not just the Calaveras County Sheriff, but you know the um, those who arrived in the numerous black SUVs that neighbors saw outside the house. Um, when Wayne arrived at the house, there were uh, stacks of empty banker's boxes that that had presumably, you know, held Marshall's research materials, his 
all the computers had been removed, mm. anything that might have had to do with his research and his writings had uh, been taken from the house. And the official story was that all this, all this had been sent to the California Computer Crime Lab, or the, in the case of the gun, California Crime Lab that you know that deals with the weapons. Uh, yet there's no report from any of those agencies about uh, a final determination. Mm. I bring this up because I read an article by Daniel Hopsicker, and he was saying that right. he was alleging Saudi involvement in the crime of 9-11, this is, uh, that Marshall was, and uh, Hopsicker was saying, well, this is not exactly new information, so he didn't think this was very likely that that would be why he would possibly be done away with for that reason. Um, and then he also points to the vast numbers, I think thousands of people who have written books about 9-11, and he says, well, you know, the only one who's not died from natural causes is Marshall. So well, what is there so special about this guy? The Saudi involvement doesn't seem to be so special information there. So it must, at least I'm thinking here now, it must be all to do with this great revelation that he was about to publish. So if it really was such a great revelation, I find it difficult to understand that he wouldn't have safeguarded that in some way. And that's a real problem for me. Well, um... <laughs> I don't. I don't have an. I don't have an answer for that, Julian. I'm, yeah, sure. And I'm. I'm not. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, you still, know, I'm still on the fence. I, I write, and and I. I don't keep, uh, you know, backups of what I'm doing in a safe deposit box or, or with friends. You know, it's it's all here. Mm-hmm. Um, it may have been that you know Marshall just wasn't paranoid enough to think that his house would would be that everything would be taken from taken from the house although there's you know there's others for instance um michael rupert who was found you know with a a bullet in his head a month or two ago Mm -hmm. who had written extensively about uh peak oil and 9-11 in uh his book uh crossing the rubicon although there's no um I haven't seen anybody investigating his uh, his death in the way that Phil Marshall had been. But Marshall is not alone. He's not the only one. Okay, yeah. Well, obviously, there are going to be there are going to remain loose ends about this. In fact, we will never know actually what happened indeed. Um, let's turn to the movie itself. One of the main questions that I have about this movie has to do with the character of Madison Freeman, who is played by Dennis Fitzpatrick. Because after Phillips has gone in the movie, it's Madison Freeman who becomes the main protagonist, and the audience sees everything from his perspective for the rest of the movie. How much of the character of Madison Freeman actually reflects the reality of Wayne Madsen's experience? I, w- I would say it reflects 100% of Wayne's experience, although it it is a, a dramatized version. So much of the information, for instance, that Wayne was exposed to, may not have originated in discussion with you know with the actual sheriff. Whereas in the film, you know, the dramatization features three meetings between the Madsen character and the sheriff in which he first confronts the sheriff over inconsistencies. He wants to see the body, and he's told that that, that's impossible. And later, when they find that the the bodies of uh, Marshall and his two kids have been cremated uh, after the house has been cleaned, etc., etc., he goes back to confront the sheriff a second time, at which point, you know, the... uh, wonderful actor who plays uh, Sheriff DeWitt, Drew Barrios. Drew Barrios almost goes mental. 
<laughs> trying to convince him that the official version is is the only possible version. But you're saying that those particular meetings didn't necessarily didn't take place. They didn't take place. No. Mm-hmm. But they capture something of the reality, presumably, of his research and the resistance he met from the authorities in other contexts. Exactly right. Uh huh. And this leads me to a question, actually, about the FBI agents in the movie who are completely fiction. How do they really function in this movie? Because what's a little confusing about this is that, you know, you're not just investigating or exploring the possibility of what might have happened with the idea that um, Marshall was killed by professional killers. You're sort of in a kind of uh, shadow world of things that actually didn't happen because the, the FBI agents were not real, yet they met this character, Madison Freeman, who plays the real character, uh, Wayne Madsen. That's a, a strange kind of genre of movie going on there, where it's a kind of counterfactual world of non-reality, and yet you're commenting on something that could have happened, but part of it couldn't have happened. It's a very difficult thing to express, but you know what I mean. How, what genre are you working with there? Why did you do it that way? Well, pretty much because there was no factual information on the identity of a killer. What I felt was important was the fact that Phil Marshall, you know, was known to be nervous about who might be a threat to his safety. Why would they be a threat to his safety? Because they wanted to be certain that he would not release any damaging or embarrassing evidence about his research, whether it was 9-11. There's some who speculate that he might have been looking into new evidence coinciding with the 50th anniversary of uh, JFK's assassination. We don't know what it was. So for that reason, I decided to insert a fictional document, if you will, into the story. When these two federal agents come to talk to him initially, they say, we believe you recently received a highly classified photograph. And that's what they're after the whole time. We don't say in the film that those two did kill Marshall. We suggest that they could have, but we don't say that they do. It's, you know, one of two possibilities. But the thing that they're after is this photograph. And it's like Hitchcock always had something called the MacGuffin, which was the jewels or the you know the incriminating evidence of some sort that everyone was always after. And that's what made the story possible. So I, I used a MacGuffin. Mm. So would, would I be right in thinking that these two guys, these two FBI agents, were sort of playing the part of... A concept, really, of the deep state that Wayne Madsen was fighting against in his research, and you sort of personified that in order to make it a dramatic possibility for the film. That's very well put. I like that. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad I got that right. <laughs> but I was puzzled about this because of the fact that I thought, well, you know, these events didn't actually happen, and yet you're commenting upon something that you're, you're saying in a way that it could have happened this way. It could have been not a murder-suicide. It could have been something other. And yet you had something that couldn't possibly have taken place in the movie. And I was wondering, what's the function of that? And now that begins to make sense to me. Well, we see, you know, we see that the house has been searched. We see that someone is actually after something that was in in Marshall's possession. Yeah. So it's not a, a great leap to assume that if agents did talk to him that they would be interested in getting a classified bit of information. 
Yeah, and a number of times in the movie, I noticed that you took the opportunity to comment upon the ways uh, that the term conspiracy theorist tends to be used, particularly by the mainstream media, to demonize, you know, people like you and me, <laughs> marginalize people who are, are trying yes. to ask questions about issues like this and other yes. issues. Um, and the place in the movie where you did that most, I think, was in that community policing kind of therapy session <laughs> with the local school children, mm-hmm. and where the officer there was, well, even suggesting that people who question um, 9-11 can be likened to terrorists, in fact, she, she was saying. That, that, that was actually based on a, on an actual on a real FBI memo, if you will, which went out to police organizations nationwide. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so that you were bringing that into that's, the narrative of the film in order to that's the reality. That. Yeah, indeed. And I think the moment in the movie where that kind of thing was handled, I think, really effectively was that dramatic high point where Madison and Sharon, so that's Philip's wife in, in the movie, they have this very intense and emotional conversation on the doorstep of Philip's house. And I think you managed to pack into that conversation all kinds of issues like, you know, misunderstanding, the effects of propaganda, uh, fear. Um, you know, the projection of hurt onto others, all those sorts of things. You seem to sort of, in a very economical way, pack it all into that very short but tense conversation. And I think it was very convincingly handled by those actors. How did you hit on that idea of, of a conversation as a vehicle for all those ideas in that really tight way? For me, it was inevitable because uh, Shawnee, the, uh, the, the real Phil Marshall's uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, I, I spoke with her a couple times, and uh, she is, in fact, convinced that Phil Marshall took his, his own life and those of his kids. You know, whether her her feeling is based on, you know, the, the sheriff tried to portray Marshall as a, as a mentally disturbed individual who got his hands on a gun, whether it's based on those kinds of feelings or whether she may simply be afraid for her own life if she contradicts the official story, we don't know. You know, she's uh, vehemently convinced that if there's someone to blame, it's her husband. So, you know, Mm -hmm. bringing those two characters together at a moment in time when she's just been told that they've all been cremated without her permission, it's uh, jam-packed with emotion. Absolutely. And so you use that then to comment upon these wider issues as well. Sure. Yeah. And as I say, those two characters there, Madison and Sharon, played by uh, Dennis Fitzpatrick and Dione Jennings. I was very impressed by your, your cast in general. How did you assemble your cast? How did you manage to get so many strong actors? I was very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbor's wife, Woody Green's wife, who's played by Katherine Johnson, was in my earlier film called Purple Mind, which also starred uh, Corey Brunish, who's now become a big uh, Broadway theater producer. Anyway, I, I showed Catherine the script in its early stages, and she was very taken by it and said, if you want a, some help meeting some of uh, the actors that I've been working with in and around town, I'll be happy to introduce you. So we spent a month of Saturdays meeting uh, a lot of really great actors. And uh, I cast, the whole movie was cast from those meetings. Uh-huh. And did you find that people generally reacted well to being invited? And, yeah, this is a great project. Or was there anybody, you know, concerned, or oh, I don't want to take part in that, it's very controversial? What kind of reactions do people have? You know, if there, was, if there were those kind of reactions, nobody said anything. Mm-hmm. Everyone I invited to play a role said yes. 
from the neighbors and the uh, the shopkeepers to the uh, you know to the major roles. Dennis had been. Dennis is a wonderful actor and um, I think deserves more attention than he's gotten. Yeah. But that's one of the pitfalls of of living in Portland. I think if he was living in L.A., you know, you'd see him on. Uh, shows like Scandal or another cop show. He's a wonderful actor. The fellow who plays uh, Philip Marshall's character, Randall Paul, he worked in Europe for a number of years. He's he's had featured roles in Eyes Wide Shut with huh. Stanley Kubrick. He's worked for a lot of big directors, you know, in smaller roles. So he's not a, a household word, but uh, he's he's a very talented guy. But then again, we have you know we have uh, three teenagers yeah. who appear in the film for the for the first time. They all turned in pretty strong performances. They did. They were very very believable. Yes, they were very good indeed. I must ask you about the wider reaction to the movie as well. I mean, how did people react to it when you were talking about starting such a project, and and how have people reacted as you were actually creating the movie, and 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 what's been the reception since it's come out? Well, it seemed that in dealing with the cast and putting together the locations and taking all the steps, putting it together and actually physically filming it, we had near 100% cooperation and support, you know, from the local community. Not that they were passionate about the story so much as filmmakers in Portland get a lot of support from the community in terms of wanting to see the filmmaking community succeed here. So on on that level, we you know we had a tremendous amount of support, both from you know from city and county people, and the local people who owned the homes that the film was made in, and Multnomah Village, which stands in for Murphy's, California. That's all here within a 20-mile radius of my office. Were a lot of people actually excited about the subject matter as well? That yes, that this was actually presenting the questions that they were dying yes. to ask. Yeah. You know, Portland is, it's mixed. <laughs> Metro Portland is, you know, very uh, vibrant, artistic community, big music scene, big independent film scene. And the neighborhoods around Portland are, are very much that way. You start going out into the suburbs and uh, surrounding communities that are that still have you know deep roots in in agriculture becomes very conservative so i i didn't want to characterize oregon or or all of portland as being you know too progressive or left leaning or any of those things you know we have uh, probably one of the one of the biggest and best bookstores in the united states powells here a lot of avid readers uh, all all the cast are very well read and intelligent folks, you know, who think for themselves. They're not inclined mm. to just accept whatever you know the nightly news says is the way things are. Marvelous, yeah, great to work with such people, indeed. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, it was a joy. And, and what's the reception been like after the film has actually come out? <laughs> well, I uh, I made the mistake of opening the film in New York at the Quad Cinema. I actually knew what what was in store for us in the press because uh, it's it's not a secret that the New York Times and uh, the mainstream media is there's a taboo against you know writing anything that smacks of 9/11 conspiracy theories 
you know, main, mainstream media, if, if, if anything characterizes, uh, you know, people like Richard Gage, who's the head of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, as uh, an X-Files deluded lo- loony. <laughs> well, when having heard Richard Gage a number of times, that doesn't strike me as a true description of him whatsoever. <laughs> He's no. nothing like a loony. No. He's a very well-respected and uh, serious investigator who's a hero in my book and in that of many, many thousands of people. Indeed. He's a very brave man. Yeah. You betcha. So that's the world we live in. You know, the the uh, the New York Times, there was a billboard for AE 9-11, uh, Rethink 9-11, in Times Square for three months, directly across from the New York Times building. And the Times didn't write a single word <laughs> about it. So it just didn't exist. It, it didn't exist. And what's interesting is that uh, the reason I opened it at the Quad in New York is that the Times policy is to review every film that opens in the four boroughs that runs for a week or longer. So I knew we were going to get a, a review in the Times. And uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot about the film that reeks of, uh, you know, being a low budget. But when you compare it to, uh, you know, some of the more mainstream tentpole films, it doesn't have the gee whiz kind of shots and imagery that come with a $100 million film. So they picked on that a lot. Really? It doesn't need it, to be honest, does it? You say it very effectively with the technical resources that you actually have available to you. It doesn't need it at all. Well, thank you. That was our hope that, you know, would be received in that light. You know, a lot of people are interested in it, in addition to yourself. A lot of bloggers, a lot of folks that come out of the 9-11 Truth movement, and we're now up on uh, two and soon-to-be three video-on-demand platforms. And uh, hopefully people will come and see the movie and tell their friends about it. And if they have friends that, you know, don't think about things like 9-11, this would be a great introduction to a a story that's not quite as threatening as the horror of people jumping from the Twin Towers and the nightmare images that that haunt us still from, from that day. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to be asking you in a minute how people get a a copy of the movie or see it online. Um, But there's one kind of a silly question that I wanted to throw in, and and that has to do with the uh, tracking number in the movie, which the uh, the two FBI agents are using. They're getting this number from the NSA. They're listening to a conversation that takes place. And lots of people will see this, so I've got to bring it up. The number assigned to Marshall Phillips was 555-666-1984. All right, I've got the reference to 666. I've got the reference (laughs) to 1984. (laughs) You're going to have to tell us what the 555 is about uh, five 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 is is a, an impossible area code so <laughs> if you want to make an impossible call dial five 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 and you're guaranteed no one will ever answer <laughs> right that clears that one up okay well my uh, my final question has to do with the arts really and raising awareness now obviously you're somebody who's a great deal of experience in this area of the arts so how important do you feel it is that people who are involved in the arts i mean whether it could be music poetry visual arts film whatever it is how important do you think is that they should use their artistic gifts to raise awareness of issues like this because obviously a lot of the concentration is upon science and engineering and that's obviously very very important but what's the place for the arts in this it's an interesting question, and a fellow at MGM may have been Irving Thalberg in the 30s, who was uh, quoted as having a conversation with one of the mayors about you know this very thing, and and uh, Thalberg said if you 
If you want to send a message, go to Western Union. That's the philosophy that has um, held true in the in the film business for you know since that time. Although clever producers and and writers have have found ways to incorporate you know very political themes into very entertaining television and and film, most notable maybe the Matrix film, but also you know television series like Scandal, which is one of my favorites. No, I don't know that, but obviously I know the the Matrix, and that's absolutely had a huge impact, hasn't it? It's referred huge. referred to in many different contexts for the uh, the philosophical implications that it has, and uh, it's it's a, a reference point for all sorts of discussions. So yeah, it's a fantastic example of how that's impacted so many people. Yeah, just the choice between the red and the blue pill. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Being, yeah, you know, being the two worlds that you have the option of um, of, of visiting or mm. staying away from. Unfortunately, I don't have the uh, connections to put a, a multi-million dollar film together. You know, the the reason we made this was because nobody was talking about it. Yeah. And it was it was clearly set up to be a story that would be forgotten, you know, within mm. a month or two of, of, of the events. But uh, everyone who read the screenplay after it was completed said, oh, gee, this is, you know, it's an important story. People need to know about it. So there we are. Absolutely. It, it is an important story. Yes. And I think, as I say, I think you did a fantastic job with it. Now, how could people actually get hold of a copy of this movie? Um, it's available online, isn't it? Uh, I think for a very small charge, can can see it very cheaply. Three bucks, a $3 rental or a $5 oh. purchase. You can find it at Vimeo On Demand and also an independent filmmaker's platform called Indie Rain. I-N-D-I-E-R-E-I-G-N, which is based in New Zealand, interestingly, uh-huh. for independent filmmakers, and soon to be on Amazon Video On Demand. Well, I highly recommend people that, who haven't already seen it do go and see it. As I said, it's an incredibly <laughs> cheap charge there. Eric Stacey, thank you for being with us today. It's been a very, very interesting discussion. And um, the movie, to say again, is Unthinkable, an airline captain's story. And it's a very dramatic thriller in its own right, of course. It, it raises very, very disturbing questions. I think that's necessary to do about this very tragic case. So uh, thank you very much indeed for sparing this time to talk with us. And thanks for your courage, really, in making the movie. Well, thank you for being interested in the story, Julian. It's much appreciated, and congratulations on all the good work that you do. That's very kind of you. Pleasure talking to you, Julian. It's been a privilege. Thanks very much. Cheers.